This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Okay, um, so a couple of things I want to say real quick before we dive in. I'm Kevin Shipp, for anybody who doesn't know me, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Um, I'm, I'm one of the pastors that you get for free. Woo-hoo. Um, so I, I, I have a quote-unquote normal job um, as an engineer in Oak Ridge. I actually work with a few folks in here, so I may say some, uh, I may tell some stories on myself tonight. Don't tell any of my coworkers because my coworkers, I think, like me, and I'd like to keep it that way. You guys know me pretty well, so if you don't like me, you're not going to like me at this point. Um, I was actually having a conversation with somebody uh, during the break. The whole point of what I'm going to talk about is after hearing from Stephen, all the women in the room need forgiveness toward their husbands, and so I'm going to just talk to the husbands for tonight about, for, or you know, to, to the women about forgiveness for their husbands who aren't living up to all these standards that Stephen just put out. So, you know, uh, guys, I guess you can just look at college football playoff information on your phone. Women, you need to listen up because you need to forgive us. No, just kidding. Um, I do want to uh, explain what I'm going to do um, and, and, and how I intend to cover this uh, just so that everybody's on the same page. So I have actually 17 points in three parts. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I actually am really only going to build toward one point. Um, tonight. So I'm going to talk about a bunch of stuff, um, but I really only have one point. And this is where I want to try to lead us um, in our time together, is I want to try to lead every single one of us in our marriages to get off of what I'm going to call the justice roller coaster and to get on the grace and mercy train. Let's get off the justice roller coaster and get on the grace and mercy train. Here is the reality. We live, as Stephen reminded us, in a fallen world, and we are fallen creatures. And as creatures, we're limited. We have certain weaknesses, things we're good at, things we're not good at. And as fallen creatures, we each have remaining sin. We live in this really grand overlap of ages in this period of redemptive history. This period of redemptive history where Christ has come and he has died. He's done everything necessary to save us from our sins and to save us from the wrath of God for our sins. But we're not perfect yet. We've not been fully and finally redeemed. God's redemptive work is not consummated yet. And so we still live in fallen bodies and we still have sin that remains in our hearts. And so every one of us have remaining sin, even though we're new creations, even though we have the Spirit of God giving us new life. And our sin is not just things we do that we shouldn't do, or things that are required of us that we do not do. Our sin is an issue in our hearts. After the Tennessee victory over Alabama, sorry, I'm going there, We all need an uplifting moment as Tennessee fans, and so I'm going to take us back to that sweet victory. Um, It was interesting. uh, This thing got posted on social media, and because it's on social media, I don't know if this is true, but it was Alabama fan reactions to the loss, and this is one of the reactions. Maybe you've seen this. This is a guy, apparently, confessing his response to Tennessee pulling off the win. 
Just smashed my TV in front of 45 guests at my son's birthday party because of Bama. My wife just took our crying kids and said they're, spending, they're all spending the week at her mom's house. This team has ruined my marriage. I can't handle this anymore. Goodbye. I am no longer a fan. As a third-generation Tennessee fan, every bone in my body wants to say, Amen! Alabama's the worst, and they're going to ruin the world, and they're going to ruin your marriage, and Nick Saban is, you know, whatever. Everything in me wants to go down that route. But this guy's problem is not Alabama football. That is not his problem. And hopefully he does stop being a fan, because clearly being a fan is a little too much for him. We, we may laugh at this, and I hope this is not true. I hope somebody just did this in a, as an extreme kind of joke thing to poke fun at Alabama. Um, but here's the reality. We have sin in our hearts, and it comes out in ways like this. If you're like me, and you've been married for any period of time, you've had nasty things come out of your heart like this. And it's because of this that when we want to think about the greatest problem in our marriage, it is going to be sins of our hearts um, that are going to be top of that list. But here is, here is the good news. I'm going to tease you with the good news up front, and then I'm going to take you there toward the end again. But the good news is that God has intervened in history to deal with this biggest problem. Psalm 103 says it this way, and we all know that this is because of what he has accomplished in Christ, but Psalm 103 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What I want to help us do tonight is I want to help us take the truth of this gospel that we all sing about on Sunday mornings, that we confess when we stand up and go through our church confession at members' family night, and really push it into the practical workings in our marriage. My greatest fear for marriages in our church is that we, we can articulate the gospel with our mouths we can understand the gospel message intellectually in our brains, but when you look into the most important relationship in our life, as Stephen just very helpfully reminded us, in our marriages, there is no functional gospel to be found. So that's what I want to help us do tonight. And what, the way we're going to do that first is by considering a parable taught by Jesus in Matthew 18. So you can turn to Matthew 18. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 35. It should be a familiar, a familiar parable for most of us. This is the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, and it starts out this way. Then Peter came up and said to him, speaking to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is a sobering and heavy passage. In order to, to, to understand why Jesus responds to Peter's question, we have to understand where this falls um, in the flow of Matthew 18. These passages and this question from Peter come just after what we typically think of as like the church discipline verses. You know, the whole idea is if your brother sins against you, go to him, show him his fault. If he doesn't listen to you, go get a couple more and then go show him his fault. And if he doesn't listen to them, then you get the whole church together. And then if he doesn't listen to them, then you, you, know, you, you treat him as an unbeliever. So what's going on with Peter is he hears Jesus teach that and he thinks, okay, wait a second. If I forgive my brother every time he sins, will my kindness not just give him opportunity to take advantage of me? To quote John Calvin, will, will kindness and mercy not become an inducement to offend? In other words, if, if people know they can, they're just going to get forgiveness from us, then doesn't that just invite more sin? So it's as if Peter is saying, surely there are limits, Lord. I mean... Seven times, I mean, I'll, I'll lay over the railroad tracks to try to forgive somebody, but that eighth time, that, that just sounds crazy. And of course, there are some caveats. So I can't cover every circumstance and where forgiveness and how reconciliation works out um, in every instance. But Jesus' answer is this parable, and in effect, what Jesus is saying is there is no limit. The way it's, it is said in Luke would leave you as often as your brother asks for forgiveness, you give it. So Christ responds to Peter's question by essentially saying there are no limits to forgiveness. You are called to forgive and to forgive every time. Why is that the case? That sounds crazy, Jesus. The first thing that you see when you look at this passage is you see that there is an infinite debt that has been forgiven. This servant owed 10,000 talents. That's like eight and a half billion dollars, okay? That's basically in infinity, okay? 
I, I know some of you like work in big companies or work in government, and billion is like rounding error, but th- this is a lot of money, okay? Eight and a half billion dollars. You can buy out Somalia with eight and a half billion dollars, okay? This is a significant amount of money, and the reality is, is this servant um, probably got into this place doing some pretty shady things, okay? You start thinking about things like Ponzi schemes and stuff like that when you have a servant who owes their master eight and a half billion dollars. But he comes to the master and he appeals for mercy, and the amazing thing is that the master forgave him for this, forgave him of this debt. He releases him from the burden of this debt which is pretty remarkable because I'm sitting here thinking like, did he have eight and a half billion dollars to lose? You know, how, how does this work? How is this possible? But if you go back and remember what I just said at the very beginning and what we read in Psalm 103 is you remember that we are this servant. We are the one who has run up a debt that is beyond imagination and is beyond our capability to pay back. And for all of us who have trusted in Christ, that debt has been forgiven. Not just partially forgiven, not just up to the day of our confession, and now we have to work off everything that comes after that. All of our debt has been forgiven. God in Christ has completely released us from the debt of our sin and the punishment that we um, should have experienced because of that sin. So this master absorbs this massive loss And likewise, God absorbed a massive loss. He gave his son to take the very punishment that we deserve for our sin. So this is what's going on. In effect, Jesus is saying, Peter, you've asked a good question, but you are missing something more important. Before you worry about the sins of others against you, you need to think about the sins you yourself have committed against God and what God is willing to do for you in that sin and in that debt. See, Peter had yet to understand his his predicament personally, and he had yet to experience the grace of God. If if you know the New Testament, you, you know how he gets there eventually. But Jesus is telling this parable to sort of correct where he starts. He's saying, hey, you need to think more, you need to think first about your own sin problem and about your own need for, for forgiveness before you're going to make any sense of my teaching on the topic. Does this make sense? Everybody with me? Okay. So what Jesus is doing is he's taking him there. And then what we see in this parable is we see in this parable a, a very shameful response to the master's mercy. So after this servant is released from this $8.5 billion debt, the servant immediately went off and declared the glories of the master's mercy and grace. Did he not? No. The servant goes out presumably from the text, you know, not a real story, a parable. And he goes out and finds a servant who owes him about 20 grand. Not a small amount. If somebody owed you 20 grand, you would want the 20 grand, am I right? Okay. Um, So he goes out and finds this servant and demands that 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 debt be repaid right then and there. He chokes him. So it's not just that he says, hey, I, I need this to come now. He physically assaults this guy. So this, this servant who has just received the most amazing extension of grace from this master immediately goes and chokes out a fellow servant who owed him a much smaller sum and demands repayment 
right then and there. And when he can't pay it, he throws the fellow servant in jail. This is how our sinful hearts work. We want justice for others, but mercy for ourselves. This is exactly what we see in this parable. We are all tempted to want justice for others and mercy for ourselves. Jesus understands this about us. He understands us, and he's telling this parable to help us see our hearts so that we understand our own great need for a Savior and therefore understand um, what kind of forgiveness is available in Christ. The third thing we see is we see this response from the other servants. The other servants see this happening and they're distressed. They're thinking if this can happen to this servant, so if, if the servant that was forgiven this infinite debt can go and immediately throw another servant into jail, we're all toast because the debt that we owe could be called in and we could all be thrown. What they fear is they fear a life of justice and retribution. They are fearing that this happy little kingdom that they're living in could turn out to be one that has a culture of justice. They, they feared the same kind of treatment for themselves, a, a culture where there's no mercy, where debts are called at a moment's notice and only punishment awaits those who are unable to pay. You also wonder if they wondered if the master was going to operate this way. Did they know that the other servant had just been forgiven this massive debt and therefore they see the master as gracious? Or in the back of their minds, do they wonder, hey, th this master is going to kind of let this, this go this way. This is the Wild West and we're all in trouble. But in the parable, they go to the master and they tell him what happened. And this, what I think is the centerpiece of this parable is the master's response to the servant. In verse 33, he says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? What we are being taught in this passage is those who receive mercy should be those that, that love and long to give mercy to others. Each of us has received mercy and grace upon grace from God, and in Christ we have been forgiven of our sins and we've been released from an infinite debt that we could never repay. And we've been invited back into fellowship with God. And we should extend this same kind of mercy, grace, forgiveness, this same commitment to restoration with others. We should extend it to others and be committed to this kind of restoration with others. Jesus is illustrating the need for this by showing us an alternative in this parable. So he, rather than saying this is what it should look like, he's showing us this is what it should not look like. And here's, here's what he is demonstrating. If we don't extend, extend the same mercy, grace, and forgiveness to others that we ourselves have received from God, then we can turn our lives, we can turn our church, and we can turn our marriages into a living hell. We really have two options. One is you can choose to live in the good of the gospel of Christ, where it goes from being theology in our heads to being something that, that penetrates into our hearts and makes its way into our lives, 
where love, mercy, forgiveness, and reconciliation flow freely, even in the hardest and harshest of circumstances, and there can be freedom and help and joy and time and space to grow, even in the midst of failure, or you can live in a works-based reward-punishment scheme where debts are kept and repayment demanded at a moment's notice, where there can be no rest until things are worked off, and in that world there is no joy, there's no intimacy, bitterness will reign supreme in this world, and in that world we would be building homes with no functional gospel. And if you take the truth and majesty and grace that's revealed to us in the gospel out of the home, it is a living hell. But there is a more excellent way that is implied in these passages and that we find throughout the pages of Scripture. What is implied by Jesus in this parable is that each of us have been forgiven an infinite debt because of Christ. He satisfies God's demands of justice and now we get to extend that same mercy to other people. We, just like Zach taught us this morning, we don't have to pay people back. Every single sin and offense is going to be punished appropriately, either by an eternity in hell or because it was born on the cross by Christ himself. And, and may we pray that that's where all the, the wrath is poured out for the sin of those that we love. Everything will be repaid. We do not have to be the ones that mete out justice. This, this isn't to say that in our marriages there aren't consequences for a spouse's sin against another spouse. This isn't about helpful consequences where we help our spouse grow. But we are not in a place of judgment. And we are not those who are supposed to bring about justice. So what I'm going to walk us through for the rest of, uh, of the time that I have with us, is how, how do we make this practical? How do we actually walk this out? You know, we are very timid as a pastoral team to insist on certain practices. We always want to bring about truth of God's Word and the principles of God's Word and recognize that how you apply that can look different in different circumstances. But tonight I'm going to insist on practices. I'm going to insist on some pretty specific application that I think is actually found in the Word of God. So this isn't just Kevin's handy tips for how to have a good marriage. I think these are actually found in the pages of Scripture, and I think these will help us um, in this area of giving and receiving forgiveness. So Jesus is implying um, in this parable and in, and in versions of this parable found elsewhere that we are called in Christ to acknowledge our sin to God and to our spouse. Our sins are always first and foremost against God. If you look at David's confession and repentance after he's you know, called out by Nathan in Psalm 51, you see this, that first and foremost his sin is, is against God. He had sinned heinously against Bathsheba and Uriah. As terrible as that was, it was first and foremost against God. So we as Christians who believe in, in Christ and who have acknowledged the truth of the gospel should be the first people to acknowledge when we sin. Because we know the remedy. We know the solution to our sin. We know that all the sin that we could ever confess is sin that's been dealt with in Christ. 
And so what we first have to be uh, willing to reckon with is the acknowledgement of our own sin. But let's talk about forgiveness. When you look at the pages of Scripture, you find that forgiveness is not an option. When sinned against, we are called to forgive. Now this isn't to say that forgiveness is easy or should always be immediate. It should be a process. But we are always called to forgive. And if you want a functional definition of forgiveness, this, this is what I would say. So if you're the kind of person that likes to take notes and have things written down in definitions, and this is a, a moment to write a definition. Forgiveness is a decision to release a fellow sinner from the penalty of their sin because God in Christ has released you. Forgiveness is a decision to release a fellow sinner from the penalty of their sin because God in Christ has released you. In marriage, the goal of giving and receiving forgiveness is the restoration or the reconciliation of the relationship. As an aside, you can still forgive somebody even if they never confess their sin and acknowledge their sin and ask for forgiveness. So forgiveness happens even in that context. But for reconciliation and true coming back together, moving forward and growing together, um, will only happen where there is actual confession of sin and repentance. But forgiveness can still be granted even in the absence of confession. But in marriage, and where I want to take us tonight, is I want us to focus on forgiveness as that pathway or the goal of being restored and reconciled. Okay, that's, that's where we're going. There are barriers to this forgiveness. There are barriers in our hearts and in our lives to extending this forgiveness to our spouse when they sin. Probably the biggest barrier is just good old-fashioned human pride. The refusal to humble ourselves and acknowledge our sin to someone else. To say, I am not perfect. I, I have sinned and I have fallen short of not just God's standards, but whatever standards. Another barrier to forgiveness will be forgetting or not understanding how you have been forgiven by God. Oftentimes we just forget. We treat, you know, the, the fifth time in a week that our spouse has forgotten to pick up their shoes from in front of the door and we trip over them on our way to work as, as if that is an $8.5 billion debt compared to my twenty grand debt. Okay, that's the way this works out in real life. We forget what we've been forgiven by God. Another barrier to forgiveness is enabling future sin. We can think that, like Peter was sort of implying in his question, if I just keep forgiving people, if I keep forgiving my husband for being deceitful, then I'm just going to encourage him to be more deceitful. And of course, maybe there are times where there need to be consequences put into place for a pattern of sin. Another barrier is the fear that talking about the sin will just make things worse. In other words, the juice won't be worth the squeeze. I'll confess my sin to my spouse and they'll just pile the condemnation on. I knew you were like this. I knew you were doing this. This is the reason why we, we, we don't have a good marriage is because you're like this. The fear can be that we're just going to get back on that justice roller coaster and the condemnation will just come. Another barrier, and I think maybe in my experience in life and pastorally, um, maybe this is the greatest barrier to forgiveness, is that we have become bitter. 
is that we have allowed bitterness to take hold in our hearts. Let, let me give you an illustration. Does anybody, does everybody remember Jurassic Park, like the first one, 1993-ish, when that came out? Okay. Um, I had nightmares for like a solid year after seeing that movie. Um, don't show that to your children until they're mature. Um, but in my hometown, um, all growing up until about two or three years before that movie came out, we had one movie theater, and it was everything that makes a movie theater disgusting and, and kind of janky. It was two screens. It was just like cinder block and carpet that hadn't been cleaned ever, so it smelled like, you know, Coke and popcorn butter and children and, you know. <laughs> It was just nasty. You only went there because this is, this is what we had, okay? Two screens. Well, about, I think about two years before Jurassic Park came out, we got a new theater built out in the north end of town, and it had four screens, you know? It was like 275 to go see a movie. I'm finally to the age where I can throw out prices of things when I was growing up, and people are like, whoa. <laughs> so, this, so Jurassic Park comes out, and I, I remember this real vividly. It played on all four screens. Like, there were no other movies that you could watch. It was playing on every single screen. And not just that. Eventually, you know, other movies came out, and so they would, you know, pull one off one screen and put that new movie on. But one screen showed Jurassic Park in that movie theater for a solid year. Okay, for a solid year, you could go see Jurassic Park. It was crazy. And I remember even as, you know, I was like 10 or 11 thinking, Jurassic Park is never going away. Like, my grandkids are going to watch Jurassic Park in this theater. Here's the reason why I tell this story. Oftentimes, bitterness in our hearts toward a spouse comes from the fact that we are carrying an offense, and if our minds are like a movie theater and we're playing something on the screens of our minds, an offense or a sin that our spouse has, has committed against us is just played over and over and over again. And one, one way that bitterness happens is we just put that up. That's all we think about. Our whole world is just thinking about what our spouse has done to us. So that movie is playing on every screen in our minds. So that's one way it happens. Another way it happens is you keep one screen, maybe it's at the back of the theater, but you keep one screen that has that movie playing on it year after year after year after year. So bitterness often comes from the fact that we just will not let an offense go. And we play it over and over and over in our minds. We never truly release our spouse from the debt that they have incurred by their sin. When this happens, it will affect everything about us. When we rehearse an offense or sin against us, it will get into our hearts, you will see it in people's faces, you will hear it in their voices, they are bitter. So if you, if you come to, to, to a moment of sobriety in your marriage and you say, we're bitter, why are we bitter? I, I would plead with you and, and, and I would say that it could be because you've never confessed sin to one another and truly forgiven one another. And you are harboring offenses that God would want to give you grace to release. In this bitterness, you can begin to, to see your spouse only through the lens of their shortcomings. This leads to 
anger or having a short fuse. It can lead to detachment, just being uninterested in your spouse. Um, or it can come up in subtle or not so subtle attempts to pay them back for their sin. The only way to truly be free from bitterness is to take that bitterness to the Lord. This is an issue between you and God. It isn't primarily an issue between you and your spouse and their offense. It's an issue between you and the Lord. Um, And he invites you to confess your sin, to confess your bitterness, to repent of it, and to commit in your heart to no longer harbor that bitterness and that unforgiveness toward your spouse. This is hard work, okay? So I'm not trivializing the fact that this could take days, weeks, months, or years to work through, and you may need help with this, but if you find that you are bitter toward your spouse, um, pursue God and pursue help um, to deal with that bitterness. So let's talk about restoration or reconciliation for just a few minutes, and then I want to land on a few practical things. So in marriage, the goal of confessing sin and the giving and receiving of forgiveness is to restore the relationship. When we sin against one another, it's like we bend our relationship out of shape. And when we come and we acknowledge our sin, we confess it, we ask our spouse to forgive us, they extend forgiveness. It's like you unwind it and and straighten it back out. And it's through this process of confession and repentance and forgiveness Um, that we are able to bring the truth and the majesty of the gospel into the mess that we can make by our sin. And when we bring the gospel into the details of our sin and our mess and our marriages, then we get to unleash the gospel's heart-changing power. And we remember and we can rehearse with our spouse the reality that all of our sin has been dealt with on the cross. Our sin and that of our spouse has all received a just punishment in Christ, and we do not have to punish one another anymore. And we can commit to live in the good of God's declaration of righteous over one another. Here's the thing that's kind of crazy about the Christian faith, is that God does all the work so that he can declare us to be righteous before we're actually righteous. And his whole goal of treating us like we're righteous is so that we actually become more righteous. We actually grow. So we don't actually encourage one another toward righteousness by meeting out justice or punishing one another. We encourage one another toward righteousness by treating each other as if we are righteous. That's the way God works. That's the way the gospel works. At the end of the day, God's intentions for our marriage is that the very sin that could rip our marriages apart becomes the very opportunity to grow deeper in love, in unity, in passion for one another and our Savior. This should not surprise us because this is also how the gospel works. God used human sin to bring about the circumstances so God could ultimately triumph over sin. He used a sham of a trial to sentence Jesus to the death penalty where he would triumph over that very sin by bearing the wrath of God for our sin on the cross. And so it shouldn't surprise us that God intends to use our sin in marriage in the process of confession, asking for, and receiving forgiveness to bring about real change. And so just a couple of practicals on on what this can look like. But this is a practice that I'm going to insist on. So this is the part where I'm going to tell you to do something. Okay? Not just a principle, but, but a practice. If you're taking notes, first, confess your sins to God. When you are, by the Holy Spirit, convicted of sin, 
and you, you, you get in, in your right head space, confess that sin to the Lord. And when you've sinned against your spouse, after you've confessed it to the Lord, go to your spouse and confess your sin to your spouse. Be specific and biblical with your confession. All of us are really good at euphemisms. I work at a place where we have euphemisms for everything. We don't have fires, we have rapid oxidation events, okay? We don't have adversaries, we have competitors, okay? Call a spade a spade. If you were angry, don't soften it with things like, well, I'm just irritable or frustrated. If you're angry, say you're angry. Confess your sin, be biblical. In your confession, focus on your own sin. Every single one of us, whether we realize it or not, are hardwired for our confession to be a jab around the side to try to get our spouse to confess their sin. Let your confession have no strings attached, no implied accusations, no expectation of a, of a like response. In other words, we cannot end our confession of sin with, well, now what do you have to say? We would never do that. This may sound crazy, but after you've confessed your sin to your spouse, ask for forgiveness. Literally ask for forgiveness. So oftentimes I'm afraid we confess sin and we never actually deal with it. We just push it under the rug or say, oh, that's okay. It's not okay. Jesus had to die for it. Okay, it needs to be forgiven. Next, commit to pursue change. This is the repentance piece. And, and, and this one goes with the next one, which is ask for help. Stephen did a great job of showing us how marriage really is um, about unity and about being together um, with, with, with a single-minded purpose. Husbands have been given wives to help them in their battle against sin, and wives have been given husbands to help them in their battle against sin. So ask for forgiveness, commit to pursue change, and ask for help. Here's what it can look like. It doesn't have to be more complicated than this. This is an example from me. Honey, I sinned against you and God. I was sinfully angry when I responded to your request. I yelled and I slammed my fist on the table and that was probably really scary for you. I am sorry for that. Will you forgive me? I want to change. Please help me. And what I want to ask everyone to do when you do this is make this easy on your spouse. We all are in the same boat. We all need forgiveness and we all have the joy and privilege of extending forgiveness to one another when our spouse requests it. With the right perspective, this asking for forgiveness and extending forgiveness can be a joy. This is a duty, so let me be clear. We have to do this as God's people. But if you're going to be given a task, what better and what more joyful task could we be given than to be put in a place where we get to remind our spouse of the glorious news that because of Christ, you are released from your debt of sin. You are released from punishment for your sin. And not only has God released you, but I'm going to release you as well. We 
are in a position where we can help our spouse experience afresh the grace and mercy and forgiveness that we have in Christ. It's not that we're getting resaved or anything weird like that, but we get to have a fresh experience of grace. That's what we're being called to with confession, repentance, and this giving and receiving of forgiveness. We get to help our spouse experience the joy of the gospel and the fruits of the gospel. Psalm 32 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now listen to what happens when we don't run to confession and repentance. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the joy, this is the opportunity we have when our spouse has sinned against us and they come to us confessing, and seeking our forgiveness is we get to let them experience this afresh in our relationship. So we take the grace that we've received and we extend it back out to our spouse. So let's live in the good of God's forgiveness. Let's help one another experience the joy of forgiveness over and over and over again, 77 times a day if necessary. And let's be quick to confess, let's be quick um, to confess and commit to forgive. Um, that bitterness that bitterness is a real temptation. Let, let's not put our spouse in the place where bitterness is going to be a big temptation. We can embitter our spouse by continually sinning against them. So let's, let's not allow a root of bitterness um, to take hold in our hearts by continually sinning against one another without confessing and asking for forgiveness. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.